0: Luke Luke chapter 19, 28 through to 40. Luke 19, 28 to 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground, on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest some of the pharisees in the crowd said to jesus teacher rebuke your disciples i tell you he replied if they keep quiet the stones will cry out we'll hand over to mark thank you
1: Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you very much, uh, Pastor Warren. You might be wondering, why did I choose a reading to do with Palm Sunday when it's way past Palm Sunday? But it's a remarkable account, isn't it? Because here we see Jesus coming down uh, towards Jerusalem, down the mountain, and uh, the people are crying out to him, and they're saying that he is the Messiah, in effect. So what happens there is that the, um, the, the Pharisees, of course, are offended by this. And they say to him, um, tell your disciples to stop this, rebuke them. And uh, I just want to share my screen with you because uh, I think this is so important because his, Jesus' response to them is really what the subject of uh, my talk is about today so let me share the screen hopefully uh, you should be receiving that okay and uh he said to them i tell you if these were silent meaning of course the the disciples around him the very stones would cry out i think that's quite a remarkable thing you see The king of glory was making his entrance into Jerusalem and the people were acknowledging who Jesus was. The Pharisees, of course, were trying to prevent that acknowledgement. But the whole of creation, in fact, cries out that Jesus is Lord. So I want to talk to you today on this this subject, uh, the rocks cry out, geology in the Bible. Now, when I was much younger, I um, had no interest in geology at all. I mean, who would study rocks? All they do is just sit there. They do nothing. I was much more interested in things that happened, things that moved, uh, mathematics, physics, and those sorts of things. But, you know, I've changed my mind very significantly now because I realize that the rocks, in fact, do really speak. They are like silent witnesses of the truth of God's word. And I want to share with you today something of the story that they tell. Now, to start with today, I can't see very many of you and it's a bit hard to interact over all this technology. But by the way, don't we thank God for the wonders of the technology that we have. But I just want to ask you if um, you could uh, click on the zoom menu that you might have in front of you there if you can find it sometimes it's a bit of a challenge find the participants box there click on that and uh, then now i've got to look over here to find that there it is and uh, down the bottom of the panel hopefully you'll see a couple of little buttons where you can press to answer yes or no so i'm going to ask you a question and uh, I want you to click yes or no. So can you tell me if this is the first ever CMI presentation that you have ever heard? So can you find the little buttons down there? Give a little click, is this the first ever presentation? So one person's managed to find it so far. The rest of you have been able to find those yes, no buttons. Getting a few no's, that's good, because I know that about this time last year, in fact, I joined you on Zoom and uh, I think it might have been the year before my wife Jenny and I were physically with you in, uh, in Chapel Street. One person's come in, that's great. Any more, a couple of people, first time. That's wonderful. Okay, thank you. Now I'm gonna ask you some questions on the way through. So I just wanted to make sure that you knew how to find that little button. Um, okay, so let's, uh, let's move on. Now I've got here a picture that uh, I wanna tell you a story about. And the story is that this boat sitting up there on the bank of a river uh, was dumped there as a result of a massive storm and flooding in the nearby river. There were damaging winds that came through. The boat broke its moorings and it was swept by the floods and it uh, ended up propped up by that tree on the edge of the river on the grounds of a rural property. Now... You look at that and you think, yep, yeah, that seems to make sense, doesn't it? So if you could go to your buttons again, I want you to tell me if you think that what I've just told you is in fact a plausible story. So if you think that was a pretty good story about why the boat is up there on the bank of the river, can you just press yes? Or if you think I might be misleading you, you could press no. Let's see how we go. We've got 50-50 at the moment. Looks like uh, four people are convinced I'm telling you the right thing. One person is suspicious. Well, let me tell you a story about another boat. Ah, Five of you think I'm pretty, pretty, okay. How about this one? So there was a boat builder who lived on a house with a very small yard, but he wanted to build a very big boat. So he thought that if he could build it on the roof of his house, <clears throat> he could build it larger than his yard, and then bring in some cranes and mobile transports and and deliver the boat to the water. But he didn't figure out the area that was going to be needed for the cranes and the transport. And um, unfortunately, that caused him to have to purchase the nearby properties, have the buildings demolished so the trucks could get in. But then he hadn't budgeted on the weight of the boat and it started to crush his house. And you can see his distressed wife and daughter there in the foreground. Now, do you think that is a plausible story? If you think that's a plausible story, why don't you vote yes? Or if you think I'm misleading you, you could vote no. So let's see how we go this time. Oh, few people are a bit more suspicious this time. A lot more suspicious. Okay, well, I think you've figured me out. So let me tell you what the real story is behind these two votes. Thank you for all those who voted. You see, the first boat is actually under construction on the bank of a river and the builder is going to arrange for cranes to lift it across and put it down in the water. So, no, it was not the result of a storm and it's not swept up there by accident. And this one, of course, you may have figured out is the result of the 2011 tsunami that swept onto the coast of Japan, causing extraordinary damage. But I guess my point here is that I can tell you a story about something you see, and if I'm very authoritative, you might believe me. And if I tell you enough or enough people tell you the same story, you might think, well, you know, maybe this is actually the case. Maybe it's true. So when we look at things around us, we need to have a backstory, if you like. What's actually happened behind this to... Permit us to be able to interpret it. You know, folks, that every single one of us has come into life in the middle of the story. And we don't know what's happened before. And we don't actually know what's going to happen ahead of us. So how do we find out what the real, the true backstory is? Well, I think we can find out by going to God's word because God in his grace and mercy has provided us with all we need to know about what happened at the beginning and what is going to happen in the future. And when we go to the Bible, we discover that God tells us he created everything in just six normal length days, just like the days that we experience now. But importantly, that story about our origins, or perhaps I should use the word that account, because it's actually the truth, I believe, begins and rests on the assumption that in the beginning, there was a God who created everything. He spoke it into being. And as we look at his word, we discover that he gives us a timeline. And we can see that from Adam all the way through to Abraham on that top line. We can see all of the fathers and sons in succession, and their ages are given. So we can work out that Abraham was born about 2000 years after the creation. We can also work out that from the time of Abraham through to King David, and then via the line of Mary and via the line of Joseph, we can get to Jesus. And that's also about 2000 years. And of course, between Jesus' time and now is about 2000 years. So according to the Bible, Here we are about 6,000 years after the creation. That's what the Bible tells us about our origins, our backstory, if you like. How did we get here? But we all live in a culture which has a very different backstory. And that backstory is what we could call evolution. And it tells us that some 13.8 billion years ago, there was a, a Big Bang, And out of that big bang came all of the stars and galaxies and ultimately our galaxy and then our solar system, our planet, and then on our planet life arose. And here we are today. Now, the backstory of our culture assumes that we can only explain the universe in natural terms, things just naturally occurring. It's actually a philosophy called naturalism, and you know, that's how people arrive at these vast ages. They begin with an assumption, a very important assumption, that there is no God and that we have to explain everything around us in purely natural terms. But friends, I want to point out to you that if you begin with the assumption that there is no God, that's really the same as atheism. It's like we exclude God from the picture right at the very outset, so the only possible option are natural processes, and therefore we end up with vast periods of time. So the evolutionary story is basically atheism disguised in scientific terms, or if you like, it's atheism in a lab coat. You see the way we look at the world and understand it is it's called our world view and the way we interpret the world depends upon the backstory that we believe so if we believe the evolutionary story and by the way most people do of course because that's what's taught as a fact in our schools and turn on a television set and look at a documentary it'll tell you about the millions and millions of years And we have random processes, death has always been a part of life and molecules to mankind and so on. But I guess the invitation I want to make today is to change the glasses that you use to look at the world, change your belief about what's happened in the past, the backstory, and take God's word as the authority. Because when you do that, you see the world as only thousands of years old, that there was no death originally before the fall of man, that God created living organisms to reproduce according to their kinds, and so on. Now, some people at this point will say to me, but but hang on a minute, Mark, are you telling me that science is wrong? Well, not exactly. In fact, science is about examining the observable world, isn't it? You see, the kinds of amazing inventions that we all take for granted these days are the result of us observing the present world and figuring out how the universe works. Not how it came to be, but how it works. And it's that kind of observable, repeatable, experimental science that gives us all the amazing technological advances that we enjoy. But there's another kind of science and we could call it historical science. Now this is still science, don't misunderstand me, but it has an added dimension and the added dimension is the belief about what the backstory is about how things came to be. So in this illustration this scientist is looking at a rock and it has a fossil in it and um, he looks at this fossil. Now if he believes the evolutionary backstory then he might wonder to himself, where did this little creature fit in that long, slow progression uh, from that first primordial cell all the way up to living organisms like you and me? I can imagine him asking himself, how many millions of years ago did it live? So, experimental science is about making observational, repeatable experiments, which are always done in the present. But historical science adds another dimension, and that is what we believe about the unobservable and unrepeatable past, which is actually outside of science. Now interestingly, the Bible's backstory is never in disagreement with what we find in experimental science. It's only in this area of historical science that the conflict takes place. And no wonder because one backstory begins by assuming there is a creator God who spoke the universe into being. The other backstory begins by assuming there is no God and we have to explain everything in natural terms. That's where the conflict takes place. So how do we find out the truth about our origins? Well, as I suggested earlier, we need to go to God's word because God is the eyewitness who was there right at the beginning and through his grace and mercy, he has given us his word. Never stop to think that if it wasn't for the Bible, we would have no idea of what happened right at the beginning. And nor could we ever find out for sure. Making observations in the present does not help us understand and reveal the truth of the past. You know, the first verse in that book, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it goes on and tells us that about 1600 years later, there was a global catastrophic flood, but Noah found favor in God's eyes, even though great wickedness had spread across the whole of the earth, and God said to Noah, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. And we read that the day that Noah and a pair of every kind of animal went on board the ark, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. You see, the Bible tells us that there was a perfect creation. Man sinned and brought rebellion and death onto this otherwise beautiful creation and it became so corrupt that God brought judgment in the form of the flood and only Noah, his wife, their three sons and their wives and a pair of every kind of animal, seven pairs of some, survived that terrible event. You know people believed that the Bible was true until fairly recently in fact. Some old Bibles for instance if you look at the margin notes Uh, Here's one, the book of Genesis, and uh, in the margin note, it says uh, this is 4004 BC. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a date based on the research of a bishop in the middle 1600s, Bishop James Usher. Right through, in fact, uh, here we have even in Shakespearean plays, you'll find in the play As You Like It, Act 4, Scene 1, Rosalind says, the poor world is almost 6,000 years old. But in the late 1700s things started to change. Let me just briefly share this with you. The first edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica 1771 listed a table of remarkable events. The first two the creation of the world and then the deluge or Noah's flood and that first edition of Encyclopedia Britannica also included a a diagram of what the uh, Ark might in fact have looked like, um, showing its decks and so on. And um, it was basically accepting the Bible's account of history. Today, of course, Encyclopedia Britannica has a different story. And it says that there is probably no other notion in any field of science that has been as extensively tested and as thoroughly corroborated as the evolutionary origin of living organisms. Well, I hope you'll see as we go through this talk that that statement really is not true. In fact, it was in the area of geology in the late 1700s that people in the West started to disbelieve the Bible's timeline of history. And in an interview um, a little while back now, a leading scientist said, I myself have little doubt that in England, It was geology and the theory of evolution that changed us from a Christian to a pagan nation. So how did it happen? Well, the father of geology, Nicholas Steno, in the 1600s, he was the one who wrote first about stratigraphy, that's the strata, the layers of rock, and he attributed them all to the effects of Noah's flood. But then along came James Hutton, And he wrote a book called The Theory of the Earth, in which he said, the past history of our globe must be explained by what can be seen to be happening now. You may have heard that catch cry, it goes, the present is the key to the past. In other words, Hutton introduced what is called uniformitarianism. We can only explain our origins in terms of mechanisms we see happening now. You notice those key words? The globe must be explained by what can be seen to be happening now. Unfortunately, the church did not stand firmly on Genesis and oppose what Hutton was saying. So by the time the middle 1800s came, a man called Charles Lyell was able to champion this whole idea of uniformitarianism. He wrote a series of books, The Principles of Geology, And in a letter to a friend, Lyell said, his objective was to free the science, that is geology, from Moses. And Charles Darwin had a copy of Charles Lyell's volumes on the principles of geology. And that really provided Darwin, if you like, the platform, this idea of the millions of years of the age of the earth, to develop his ideas about biological evolution in the middle 1800s. And that then really brought about a dramatic change and a rejection of the opening chapters of the Bible. So when we look at landscapes like this one, these are the glass house mountains that you would see if you go north of Brisbane in Queensland. How do we interpret the landscape? Well, the way we interpret it depends upon the backstory that we believe. So here at a lookout at the Glasshouse Mountains is an interpretive sign. And the sign says, the Glasshouse Mountains were once lava plugs within volcanic cones. The volcanic cones and surrounding Landsborough sandstone were eroded by wind and water over 25 million years to reveal the lava plugs which you can see today. So there's a story, but notice it introduces time scale. Now the mechanism is probably right, it certainly makes a lot of sense and stacks up with observable science, but 25 million years that stands directly in opposition to what the Bible says. Here's another amazing landscape. We see large-scale sedimentary rock deposits on display like in no other place on the earth at the Grand Canyon layer after layer, and the story goes that each layer was laid down slowly, perhaps in some kind of catastrophe, but then layer after layer slowly built up over millions and millions of years to produce all of that rock that we see today. And then along came the Colorado River and slowly carved out the massive Grand Canyon. And it looks like it must have taken millions and millions of years. But when we look closely, we discover that those layers are very sharply defined. Can you see them there? But the surface has been highly eroded, hasn't it? So if each of those layers lay there for a long time, you would expect its surface to be likewise eroded. But that's not what we see. We see clearly and sharply defined boundaries. Here, not far from where I live in Sydney, uh, there's a, a, a cliff face that you can see layers of. Uh, mudstone at the bottom there, then a coal-bearing layer, a uh, an ash layer, volcanic ash, then more coal, more volcanic ash, and so on and so forth. It actually speaks of a watery catastrophe punctuated by volcanic eruptions, a very violent and rapid process, not slow and gradual at all. Look at the layers here in these mountains. They're called the Rainbow Mountains. How dramatic are they? But notice how eroded and uh, and rough the, uh, the surface is, all undulating, but the layers are all clearly defined as they've been laid down rapidly and then tilted and then the surface has been eroded away. And here are the Bungle Bungle range in Western Australia. Once again, notice all those layers which continue through the whole area. And then there's been a lot of erosion in between to form these amazing landscapes. You know, the processes of rock building show a lot of evidence of violent and rapid process. We find what are called polystrate fossil trees. These are fossils which uh, tree trunks that run through multiple layers. Now, if each of those layers were thousands of years apart or took a long time to form, the tree would have rotted away long before. It actually speaks of a rapid and catastrophic emplacement of those tree trunks in, in a dramatic watery catastrophe. It doesn't speak of slow, gradual processes at all. Now, <clears throat> in fairness, modern day geologists recognize that catastrophic processes do, in fact, have a place in describing geology. And they often appeal to a catastrophe in a local area. Interestingly, though, they never combine all of those local catastrophes into one global one because That might sound like a biblical flood. But we also find these layers and layers of rock amazingly folded in structures like this one that we see here in Alaska. You can still see each of those uh, sedimentary layers. Sedimentary rocks, by the way, are rocks laid down by water and we find them all over the earth. That sounds consistent with a global flood, doesn't it? But have you ever tried to bend a rock? I mean, what happens? It it obviously fractures, doesn't it? You don't take a rock or layers of rock and bend them tightly like these without any sign of fracturing. Now you can bend rocks often through metamorphosis, but that involves a lot of heating and you see evidence of that, but there is no evidence in these situations. But you know, the Bible tells us that at the subsidence of the flood, the mountains rose up and the valleys sank down and the crust of the earth would have been uh, laterally stressed and buckled and folded and those freshly laid, water-laden, sedimentary rock layers would have um, been distorted into these shapes and then solidified. But you know, evidence for rapid formation is not just in the nature of the rocks. We also find in those sedimentary rocks the remains of once living creatures like this beautifully preserved fossil fish. Now in our biology textbooks and so on you often hear about the origin of fossils and uh, the story goes and in fact you see it on interpreted signs. Let, let me share one such sign with you and uh, this sign explains how the fish were preserved and uh, I'll read out each of the sections here. It says, the fossil fish at Waipiti Lake are discovered in layers of black shale that were once mud on the floor of the sea. And the first panel says, the Waipiti Lake fish lived in open ocean waters. When they died, they sank to the bottom where they were buried in the mud. The fish skeletons were flattened by the weight of accumulating sediments. Today, remains of the fish are revealed as the rock is eroded. Well, let me ask you a question. We can do some real science. Perhaps you've kept fish. So head off to that participants list again and uh, answer this question for me. Do fish sink when they die? Do fish sink when they die? So can you click yes if you believe they do or no if you believe they don't? Some of you who have kept fish at home, you might might have observed this. I'm not sure. Well, it looks like we've got a few people there who are saying they don't think. Look at that. That second image shows fish sinking, doesn't it? That's what the caption says. But that's not what we observe. Some do, but almost all fish will float to the top. And then in nature, other fish will eat the remains, birds will pick out whatever, and the bony remains will sink to the bottom. You see, that's just a backstory about the past. In order to form a fossil, we need some special conditions, one of which is rapid burial. And the fossil record actually shows rapid burial. Look at this guy there caught in the act of eating his lunch. Now, that didn't happen slowly. I think fish fossils probably formed like this. The little fish is swimming happily along. It gets dumped on by tons of mud and sediment. It ends up buried in the layers of rock whereupon it dutifully becomes a fossil. But you know, that disastrous, catastrophic, rapid process is exactly consistent with what we'd expect if Noah's flood was actually true. You know, to form a fossil, we need to have rapid burial. We need to have uh, lack of predation. Predators must not be able to reach the body. It needs to have, uh, there needs to be oxygen deprivation so the body doesn't rot away. And not only that, but a continued accumulation of sediment on the top. All of those features are what we would expect to find as a result of Noah's flood. So what that tells us is that the layers of rock that we look at must have formed quickly because they contain fossils which must have been buried quickly. So scientists thought, well, maybe the time, the millions of years must be between the layers. Well, when we look between layers of sedimentary rock, we often find what are called ephemeral markings, things that require rapid burial to be preserved like ripple marks and fossil remains of raindrops or animal tracks. Here are some fossilized ripple marks at Kalbarri National Park in in Western Australia. Another layer has been deposited over the top quite quickly. When you're down at the beach and you see ripple marks on the seashore, how long do those ripple marks last in the sand? Not very long. The next tide and they're all washed away and new ones are left. And animal tracks, the same thing. If you leave footprints on the beach in the sand, do your tracks last to become fossils? Well, no. So the ephemeral fossils suggests that there's been little or no time between the layers. So the time doesn't pass there either. So in the rock layers, the time is not in the layers and it's not in the gaps. You know, there are no millions of years in the rocks. So the rocks actually tell us a story. They do speak and they speak out about the truth of the account in the Bible of the flood of Noah. Now, I wanna share with you a geological model that my colleague, Dr. Taz Walker developed and it helps us to understand the rocks. So here is a timeline, first of all, from creation through to the flood, to the time of Christ and the present day. Let's tip this timeline up on its end, and then we'll map it across and make a rock scale instead of a time scale. Now, there would have been, of course, a considerable amount of rock building going on in the creation week. And in the time between creation and the flood, not very much would likely have happened. But during the flood, there would have been massive amount of geological work laying down all of those sedimentary rocks. And post-flood, yes, some, but not a great deal. So let's use that model to interpret the Grand Canyon rocks. Now we notice that the Grand Canyon rocks were formed rapidly because they contain fossils and they are on a very large scale. So were they creation rocks or flood rocks? Well, as we look closely, we discover that they contain fossils. So they can't be creation rocks because death did not come into the world until after the creation, did it? So that means they cannot be creation rocks, they must therefore be flood deposited rocks. So let's build our model in a bit more detail. We can look at what happened in the flood. Now I'm not gonna drill into this uh, too much, so don't don't panic, but let's think about the flood. The waters would would have uh, progressively inundated the earth and then they would have receded off the earth So as the waters were inundating the earth, we'd be depositing all of these layers and layers of sedimentary rock. And then as the waters flowed off, we would produce erosion landscapes. So we have an inundatory phase and a recessive phase. Well, where do the Grand Canyon rocks fit? Well, it turns out that there are footprints between the layers of rock on the Grand Canyon. So it can't be the recessive stage because If there were animals alive then, they would have survived the flood. And the Bible tells us clearly that they did not. So it cannot be the recessive stage. It must have been in the inundatory stage. Now, one more step, just bear with me and hang on. Let's look at the recessive stage. There are two parts of that, what's called abative and dispersive. So the first thing that happens as the mountains rise up and the valleys begin to sink down at the subsidence of the flood. All that water begins to flow off of the continents, initially as vast sheets of water, cutting huge flat areas like the Australian outback, the Canadian prairies, the Russian steppes, and so on. These are called planation surfaces. And then as the water started to get shallower, it would disperse into channels and valleys. And we would see a lot of very common features The Blue Mountains, not far from where I live, you can see the planation surface, it's a high plateau. And in fact, uh, in the New England district in Armidale is also a high plateau with deep gullies and gorges that have been eroded out during the dispersive phase of the flood. Here in Monument Valley in Utah, we see planation surfaces and massive erosion. Grand Canyon, it's a high elevated plateau, but the canyon has been carved out through massive erosion. And in the Southern Highlands, uh, we see the same, planation surfaces and massive erosion. Now, all of these signs are consistent with a massive watery global disaster, just like described in the Bible. You see, the rocks really do speak of the truth of God's word. But let's take a look at some smaller features Here are some rocks and boulders on some flat surfaces. Now, these are quartzite cobbles, and they've been moved about 500 kilometres from their source. And geologists can tell that this is in the US, and these rocks have come from the Rocky Mountains, and they're strewn across the central plains of the US. What could move these boulders on a flat surface so far? Well, when the numbers are crunched, these cobbles, which, some of which are about 15 centimetres across, that's about a hand span approximately, they would require a water flow of at least 105 kilometres per hour at a depth of 60 metres to move them and spread them across the US. That is amazing. We don't see that happening today, do we? But guess what? It's consistent with the Bible's record of a global flood. You know, with the aid of Google Google Earth, we can discover some interesting geological features. This is uh, a river. It's actually a creek in uh, southern New South Wales. And you can see the river channel meandering along there. And the wider area outlined in yellow is what's called the floodplain. So when it floods, the waters will flow out into that area. Now, with the help of uh, Google Earth, we can zoom right back out And that little white square is what I was looking at in the previous illustration. But what you can see, I hope, is that what was, or rather is, the floodplain of today's little river was actually the channel of a massive, meandering river. And the surrounding countryside represents the floodplain of that mega river. So somewhere in the past, Massive amounts of water were draining off of the landscape in uh, in central New South Wales. You know, once again, consistent with the, the, the continents rising, the waters flowing off the continents at the subsidence of the flood. Now, thanks to Google Earth, we can zoom back even further. And we notice around all of the continents on the Earth, there are things called continental shelves or continental margins. And these are shallower areas which extend for sometimes up to a couple of hundred kilometres, and then it dips uh, down deeply into the ocean basins. But you know, that's consistent, isn't it? With those freshly laid, uh, the most recent layers of rock laid down in Noah's flood being swept off as the continents rise. And all that sediment is deposited around the, uh, the continents. One interesting feature though, if we come in and zoom in just offshore from Perth, we notice there's a massive submarine canyon. It's actually larger than the Grand Canyon, directly opposite the Swan River Valley. So I can imagine how at the last stages of the subsidence of the flood, the waters are flowing off and they're carving out very deep canyons. And we find this uh, all over the world, in fact, you know, the Bible's backstory or its record of history makes so much sense of the geology that we see today. The rocks really do speak out. So even though we've come in in the middle of the story, we can discover the truth of what has actually happened in the past. Isn't God good to have given us his word? Some people will say to me, but yeah, why does all this matter? Well, let me try and explain it like this with the big picture. You see, the Bible describes the original earth as a beautiful, very good creation. And You know, when God says something is very good, you can believe it really is good. In other words, it could not possibly have been any better. There was no suffering, no sin, no pain, no death. It was a very good creation. But tragically, because mankind, we made in God's image, rejected our creator God. That brought suffering and death into the world. Why? Because we cut ourselves off from the source of all life. The only option, if you think about it, is death and suffering. And friends, that is today's world, isn't it? Full of death, disease, suffering. That's not the world that God created. He's not like that. That's not his nature or his character. The Bible also says that there is coming a new heavens and a new earth. And that will be a restoration of the original creation. How awesome is that? You know, if we allow belief in the millions and millions of years of earth history into our thinking, and I have to say, I did as a young Christian for many years, in fact, then it's like taking that top left-hand corner out of the picture. So can you see what happens now? That means that today's world was created that way by God. So that means the death and suffering and all the bad stuff we see in the world today is directly attributable to him. But that's not what the Bible says, is it? The Bible says it was Adam's sin that brought death into the world. But because the new heavens and the new earth are going to be a restoration, well, a restoration to what? To more suffering and death? So if the millions of years are true, there's actually no hope for the future either. So, friends, as I grew up as a young Christian, I was so confused. The gospel message made no sense to me. And it really only did when I put that top left-hand image back into the picture. When I understood that Jesus came to pay the price for my sin and the price of my sin is death, a price I can't pay, but Jesus took it onto himself. So great was his love for us. Friends, that's why this issue of origins is so important because the very gospel message rests upon it. You know, the Bible says that we are to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So how do we demolish this argument, this evolutionary backstory that really stops people from coming to know God? And, you know, the reason it stops people coming to know God is If the evolutionary backstory is true, then there may not even be a God because the universe got here all by itself by accident through natural processes. You see, that's a barrier to people coming to faith. So how do we demolish the argument? Well, friends, we can't all become scientists and so on, and and nobody knows all the answers anyway. But what we can do is discover vital resources, and that's what's that is what Creation Ministries International is about. We provide resources and answers to the questions that Christians commonly face in our secular age. And one of the best places to go to discover answers to your questions is our website. And there's um, the top right hand corner of the website is what it looks like there. There's a search window that gives you access to currently some 12,000 articles and items of interest. There's a new feature article every day, and we encourage people to go and read it, the faith-strengthening, God-honoring articles and material. And of course, it has the most amazingly easy web address to remember. And here it is, of course, creation.com. We also provide for you a free email newsletter service. We call it InfoBytes, and uh, I know what you're thinking, oh dear, not another email, but Let me invite you to give it a go if you don't already subscribe because it gives you an approximately weekly digest of the key things and articles and events. um, That are there to help you in this battle of the cultures, the clash of worldviews. and uh, if you uh, join up you'll get the, the first time you will get a free video download and heaps of encouraging articles. Importantly, though, is our Creation Magazine. And this is written for lay people. There are four issues every year. And you know, it gives you answers to your own questions, which permits you then to answer the questions of other people. So, parents, have you got questions your children are asking you that they bring home from school when they hear the evolutionary story? Creation Magazine is a fabulous resource for that. Grandparents, you can help your grandchildren. And by the way, it's a wonderfully effective witnessing tool. Let me ask you a question. If you could jump onto your participants list again, how many of you are already subscribers to Creation Magazine? Just give me a yes or a no if you could do that down there. If you're a subscriber already or if you're not a subscriber, just so I can get a feel for how many are familiar with this wonderful resource. Now, while you're doing that, I'm going to show you how you can get a hold of it. Now I've put up on the screen a QR code and I'll leave it up there for a minute so you get a chance to either do a screenshot or to photograph it. And uh, through this QR code, you can sign up for the Infobytes newsletter or Creation Magazine, or you can also plug into our many social media platforms. And uh, you know, while it's up there, I just wanted to share with you um, a, a testimony we had from Creation Magazine. This man wrote to us and said, I was converted when someone gave me a copy of Creation magazine. Then I subscribed for five of my relatives. Four of them have now come to the Lord. What a wonderful testimony. He came into the kingdom because someone just gave him a copy. This is a wonderful tool for witness. And now four of his relatives have come as well. Now, when you follow that um, QR code, by the way, if you... Uh, can't get uh, that a photograph of that, then the URL is connect.creation.com, which you can see written underneath there. Now, the first page it'll take you to is um, welcome, let's get started. And uh, you won't actually find today's meeting there because it's a closed group on on a Zoom session. So just notice that little spot, I am at an event, but it's not listed. So click on that and it will take you to a spot where you can write in Chapel Street Baptist. And then if you continue from there, it'll give you the opportunity to sign up to the Infobytes and uh, then to any of our social media platforms if you want to follow us via that process. And you get a big thank you at the end and to subscribe to Creation Magazine, just uh, click that button down there as well. So here it is again, the QR code Uh, that you can photograph. Now, not only do we have things like the Infobites and Creation magazine, but there are lots and lots of other books and DVDs. Uh, You know, if you purchase just one book, I would recommend this one. It's called the Creation Answers Book. It answers the most asked questions that Christians and non-Christians alike have. And uh, things like... um, how do I know there's a God? And uh, where did all the water go after the flood? And all those sorts of questions. The classic question, where did Cain get his wife? How many times that one comes up? So it's all answered there in the Creation Answers book. Um, and by the way, I should have mentioned my colleague, Hugh Menzies, is also on this call. And uh, Hugh is uh, providing you uh, input in the chat room. If you look in the chat, you'll see that there's... Uh, a number of things he's entering there, links that you can go to, uh, to get a hold of these resources. The Deep Time Deception is a new book, a marvelous book, which looks at this whole question um, of um, the uh, the claims of the millions and millions of years and how to deal with the so-called evidence. And uh, this is a great one. Those of you who have students in your family or you know students, Um, The Creation Survival Guide, How to Graduate with Your Faith Intact, uh, a wonderful resource. And we have so many videos which are available through our streaming service, which you can also get a hold of. So when you get to the checkout on the website, um, here's a very useful thing to do. Type in the coupon code there that I've got up. Um, It's MH. 210822, which happens to be my initials plus today's date in the year, month, day format. Now, if you type that coupon code in, you'll get a 20% discount off your purchases. Uh, That excludes subscriptions and already discounted products. So, friends, here is a great way to get equipped to answer the questions, to help demolish those arguments and pretensions that stop people coming to a knowledge of God. So let me finish where we started. So Jesus said to the Pharisees as they tried to get him to stop his disciples, proclaiming that he was the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He said to them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And friends, I want to say to you today that the stones do cry out and they cry out glory to the creator and the truth of his word which leads us every time to the person and the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you so much for bearing with me this morning and uh, I'll hand back now to Pastor Warren. Thank you very much.